there out there, all of my friends. Welcome once again to the Everyday Missionary Podcast, episode 269, and it is coming to you live from my uh, German-fested quarantine that is my office. Not because I'm quarantined with COVID, I'm just quarantined with some other thing that is just whooping me, man. For like, like on Sunday, I I woke up feeling great, did church, got home from church and went off the cliff. And I have never really come back up since today is probably the best I have felt. I had a little bit of one of those reprieve moments, like on like Monday night, uh, went down to the gym, kind of worked with some clients, whatever else, uh, came back home and I'm like, I did too much stuff. Of course I was dumb enough to actually work out when I went down too. And that's probably what pushed me over the top. Uh, and so, uh, then Tuesday down for the count today is Wednesday, halfway through the day, kind of down for the count. And I finally decided, you know what? I got to get up and do something simply to just let the stuff drain from my head down toward my lower extremities or something. Right? So why not do a podcast and why not deal with a simple topic like hell? Why not do that, right? This is what happens when I am um, kind of laid up and I can't be as uh, active as I tend to be. Uh, that then I start reading things or thinking about things or doing things, and I'm like, hey, I could bring everybody along into my little journey on this. Uh, and so today's podcast is a little bit unique. It's gonna finally tie into the end of being an everyday missionary. I promise it will, because I always try to keep it committed to that. But every once in a while, I like to do kind of a Theo Geek edition and uh, you know get all of us to think a little bit. Not necessarily because I'm trying to get anybody to like shift from one gear to another gear, but simply for us to realize that there is diverse Christian thought in our shared Christianity both uh, in the States and globally, and then historically, we come from this long line of tradition that has all sorts of ideas involved in it, and I think it's sometimes healthy to be reminded of that, and that's just because I'm a real big fan of the fact that I think we all know less than half of everything, including any kind of theological tradition we're in. It is not airtight. It's not complete. We haven't figured out and cracked the code and everything else, and we're the only ones that have perfect knowledge of things. It doesn't exist that way, and and I like that richness. I I like the fact that there is unity and diversity in the context of Christianity. I really do dig that. I can learn from others, even if I disagree with them. Sometimes in the process of disagreement, there's also refinement. And some of the positions that I hold, it kind of rubs off some of the edges. It makes me go, oh, I got to be a little bit more clear about that. Or maybe I need to be a little bit more limber about that. Or maybe I had preconceived ideas that I thought this was more anchored than I thought it was. I didn't think it had the problems and in fact might. And then from that, hopefully it generates both humility and worshipfulness. And and I think those are the things that should come out of our theological exploration. I think too often what tends to happen in those studies is more pride and argumentation. And I really think the result actually should be humility and worshipfulness. Not that there isn't a space to have discussion, even a space to have debate, but those debates should always be uh, well-intended. They should be kind of in a spirit of collaboratory debate, uh, not because I'm trying to beat you or best you or win against your argument necessarily, but rather I want to be able to articulate my position as best as I can and acknowledge where my position has its limits or weaknesses or just simply cannot answer all of the problems. I mean, I think all of that's really, really good. And and part of the reason I'm a fan of all of this is not simply for the humility and worship aspects, but also is I, I like to maintain in the podcast a lot, the Bible is a really, really messy book. 
I, I know that we would take comfort in trying to clean it all up and simplify it all, but I, I actually like the fact that even the biblical writers themselves have unity and diversity. You know, there's a great book, really dense, deep, thick. I, I probably have like 200 flags in it because it was so good uh, by a guy named Dunn that was called Unity and Diversity in the New Testament. Very, very academic book, but he just highlights the fact that, you know, in our simplified model, we want to show how everything just fits together perfectly. But when we do that, we kind of rob the writers of their diversity, you know. And so even like I was talking about in our series we're doing in First John right now as a church, how John is writing much more practically than Paul writes. And so Paul cares about positional theology. John cares about practical theology. And if we try to clean up John with Paul or Paul with John, we miss the fact that they each have intentions. They each have a point of view. They're each coming with a certain background and baggage and priority and everything else. And, and to let the diversity be there as well, not just figuring out how they're unified, but celebrating the diversity that's revealed and letting each speak of their own accord it kind of brings out really beautiful nuances for us to be discipled by, grow in, and reflect on from kind of different points of view. And so I think the same thing then comes out when we look at people that have different points of view in the Christian tradition uh, when it comes to certain topics. And hell is actually one of those things that has different points of view, both historically in Christianity and in the current context of evangelicalism. While there is the most popular, well-known positions of hell, there's also other positions that increasingly are being identified as still within the realm of orthodoxy, uh, different, maybe jarring at times, but still in the realm of what would be orthodox Christianity and raising different questions and different concerns and getting us to think in different ways. And so from that, uh, there is a book called Four Views on Health. For those who are watching, I'm holding up the book right here so you can see it. And this is actually a second edition, I think it is, has new contributors to it. So originally there was only three contributors and an editor. Now there's four contributors for four different views. Uh, and then it's uh, um, edited by uh, Preston Sprinkle. Uh, maybe you've heard of him in some other contexts. He deals a lot with like gender issues and LGBTQ issues in the evangelical space with, within uh, Orthodox Christianity. So he's a gracious tone, kind of a biblicist that has gracious tone. I really appreciate his spirit. And it comes out even in this book here. And then you get these four different positions in the book. And so I guess I'll give you briefly the four different positions. I encourage you, if you're just one of those people, it's like, hey, man, I want to explore this more. I want to understand hell a little bit more. Um, this is, a, I think, a fascinating resource to talk about how, hey, uh, here's four different positions on the topic. And then each of the are actually, you know, what happens here is that each of the writers of each position, they write the position and the other three contributors, they kind of bring in where they differ with that position. And then that's kind of the way the book unfolds, right? And then Preston Sprinkle kind of has an introduction and a conclusion. And he talks about the strengths and weaknesses of each point and how they are really, really thoughtful. And so I think that's really good. So I'll kind of give you the four because, again, I know a lot of us don't probably have time in our lives to stop and go, what? There's four different views on hell? Uh, and then from that, I'll, I'll kind of just share a little bit of my closing thoughts on this and how it kind of ties into being an everyday missionary. Uh, so basically, when it comes to the four views, I'll give them to you really quick. The first is the one that you're probably most familiar with, which is the eternal conscious torment. So that's the simple idea that once a person dies, if they don't have belief in Christ, um, they are forever locked into the space 
of eternally existing, consciously aware of their circumstance with a torment that will never end for all eternity. So if we talk in terms of billions, trillions, and Googles of years, you would you would be living in that existence for all eternity in this irreversible, um, locked-in space of of uh, eternally being punished, right? And that's kind of that traditional version. We think about Dante's Inferno. We think about all the images of hell that we have. That's kind of that position that's that's well understood and probably well um, assumed by most people to be like the only biblical kind of solution. But there are three other different opinions on this. Now, what I want to be clear with as I go into these next three, all four of the writers of or all four contributors to the book, they all agree that there's a hell, right? So the question isn't, is hell a thing after this life? The question is, what is the function of hell? What is the nature of that hell? What is the duration of that hell? That's kind of what it comes down to. The first one is clear, eternal, conscious, and torment. That's what it is. The second variation that comes up in the book is the idea of what we would call a nihilism. I think the book gives it a slightly different label. Let me go back and look what they called it. Terminal punishment. And this idea is the idea that when uh, people die, they end up in hell. And hell is sort of just, uh, if they don't believe in Christ, they end up in hell. And, and it's sort of just accumulating people over the course of time. And it accumulates people until the final judgment. And at the final judgment, God brings eternal destruction to everybody that didn't believe in, in Christ, everybody that's outside of covenant with God. And that eternal destruction is in fact that they're destroyed eternally. So when we see language in the Bible about destruction, where the eternal conscious torment position, the first one in the book kind of says, well, you're, you're eternally being destroyed. You're always feeling a sense of destruction eternally. They would say, no, 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 you're destroyed eternally. You no longer exist. That is that terminal punishment. So God says there is judgment for you, but it's not, and it's an eternal judgment. You cease to exist, but it doesn't mean you consciously are aware of the destruction and it goes on forever, but rather this, this termination point in the position. And the, the kind of the, the place that they put a lot of their weight there is that language, eternal destruction. Uh, they look a lot at the Old Testament with these words of God, you know, brought that that's kind of like the, the capital punishment is the eternal destruction kind of concept. So it is justice, but it's just you're removed from the equation, right? And that's the annihilism position, which for a long time was taboo among evangelicals and a guy named John Stott back in the 90s, I think it was. Uh, kind of came out with this, like, yeah, I think I'd lean this way a bit more. And and then at first it was like, no, you can't believe that. And now there's been a lot of reflection on it. And it's like, there's actually a pretty decent case to be made for that. When you look at the Old and New Testament, you kind of parse out the language and everything else. We find that, hey, there is there is some space for that as well. Now, I'll kind of, my closing thoughts, we'll kind of get into why I think there's some even, like, thoughtful theological for, reflection for why that has some possibility to it or why we should think about that. So that is kind of this terminal punishment annihilation position. It's just you come to a point of ceasing to exist after the final judgment of all things, right? Uh, and part of that is even the mercy of God, but it's also the justice of God being kind of buckled together. Um, the third position in the book is what's called a universal restoration or universal reconciliation or evangelical universalism. And this is the one where people go, uh-oh, you just used the word universalist, right? Um, 
and, and where it gets called evangelical universalism, I, I think the better terminology, so it doesn't clutter the problem here, is this idea of universal uh, reconciliation or universal restoration. And this is the idea very clearly. I want to be clear about what this is. What it's not is, hey, all roads lead to heaven. All roads lead to God. That's kind of pluralistic universalism. That's not what the writer in this book is getting at whatsoever. In fact, if anything, what they're looking at is how the cross of Christ is so potent uh, that it actually has the power to reconcile all people through all ages back to God. So it's the cross and resurrection that saves. It's Jesus alone that saves in this position, but it's going to be that eventually, which means the terminating point of opportunity to believe isn't simply in this life, but it extends into the afterlife. So you might be in hell for a while, but the invitation to belief is always there to everybody for an elongated period of time. And eventually it wins over all and empties out all of hell, brings them all into relationship with God. And from that, there is a universal reconciliation of all people to God. That's kind of the position that that third writer takes in the book. And I know for some of us, we go, no, 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 that just can't be the case. But I would encourage you to read the book more than listen to me right now. But it's funny, at the end of the book, Preston Sprinkle, the contributing editor, kind of writes, and he's like, and I listened to him in a podcast too, he's like, it's actually one of the more exegetical cases that's built in the book. And if you're not familiar with the word exegetical, it's a biblical investigation thoroughly with Greek and Hebrew taken into account and lots of passages to support the point. His point is, man, he builds a really, really good Theory, like solid biblical case, not an emotional case, not a sentimental case, but a really good biblical case for the idea. And it's a fascinating read. He's got some other books on this as well. But to kind of ground you in where he kind of builds this a little bit, this is just a taste of this one because I know this is the most foreign one to probably us as evangelicals. But uh, he talks about uh, this idea that like you think about, we just, it, we, we're going through First John right now. And in 1 John chapter 2, John talks about that Jesus, uh, he is the atonement not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. And that word that's used to translate into atonement, it could also mean expiation. It can mean propitiation. We kind of use it versatilely because it's a very little used word in the New Testament. Only John uses it. Um, but when it says that, if it's saying concretely, Jesus is this for us, and he uses this word that says our sins are dealt with in Christ. And not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world then like what, what the writer would say is like, well, then our sins and the sins of the whole world are dealt with in Jesus. Jesus has died for the sins of the whole world. They're atoned for, they're removed, they're gone. In that sense, the penalty has been addressed for the world. There's no penalty against the world any longer. That's the problem of the world is not a penalty problem. It's that they're not in relationship with God problem. So Jesus has died and dealt with their sin problem. Now what they need to do is believe and be reconciled to God in the relational side of things. And that opportunity is available to them uh, in this life or after this life, because ultimately their sins have been addressed because of the cross and resurrection. Their sins are dealt with, but now God is waiting on them and wooing them into relationship with him. And so until they want to take that step or they enter into relationship, they're still estranged. They don't have this relational connection to their, their creator. They're still image bearers, all of that, but they, they need to kind of take that step to enter into that, but that will always be available, Right throughout all eternity and eventually everybody's going to be reconciled. And, and the idea of this eternal or this uh, universal reconciliation comes out of like Colossians chapter one. 
where it says he's reconciled all things to himself, to himself, whether on earth or in heaven through the blood of his cross. Or we think about like Philippians, every knee will bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ. And it says, you know, on the earth, below the earth, everyone, everywhere else, everyone is going to do that. And that idea of that Jesus Christ is Lord uh, is a declaration of his lordship. So it's another kind of section where it's like everybody is eventually going to enter into that space and thus there is going to be a universal reconciliation of all people at some point in the course of eternity unfolding so that's kind of that third position and that's the one that probably tweaks our brain the most but again when you kind of read through his argumentation you go hey, this is really, really thoughtful. This is not, again, just like willy-nilly, feely-goodish kind of thing. I think in a lot of ways, he looks at a pattern and he sees the pattern is there is relationship to God. There is rejection of relationship with God. Judgment comes, but judgment always leads to reconciliation. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, that is the sweeping model. There is relationship, sin, judgment, reconciliation. And that's all judgment is designed to be restorative more than it's designed to be punitive. So he looks at those patterns and he gets into the New Testament, kind of unearths to some degree the, the word Gehenna for hell. Um, there's really good cases to be made of what Jesus is getting at there. And maybe we don't fully understand what it has as far as terminology usage in the Old Testament, how that maybe should be more ported into the new than us kind of abandoning its Old Testament roots and using it in a whole new way. There's just some interesting stuff there. But if you're interested in this, hey, man, that is a particularly interesting chapter on the idea that Jesus reconciles everything to the Father, kind of via that Colossians passage. There's other passages where you see this universal reconciliation notion. You see it kind of in Romans chapter 4 into 5. You see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 as well. Like, he makes a big deal about when the Bible says all, like, it actually means all, and we go, well, it can't be all. It means only those who believe, which is only some, which is only a minority, and it can't be all. You know, we play these word games, and that's true to every position. What I love about this book is that every position makes really good points and has really glaring weaknesses, right? And I think that's a part of the project of studying the Bible is we all realize that, you know what, many of the things that we hold have really good ideas and have some holes in it, and as long as we're honest about that and nothing is airtight, nothing is absolutely perfectly simple to be able to conclude on every single point. I think like the basic core identity of Christian ideology and orthodoxy, we can do that. But there's some things, man, it is a little tougher to figure out. And it kind of comes with that too. So that's the third position, universal reconciliation. And then the fourth position is actually a Protestant version of purgatory, right? So in that sense, it's the idea that there is still after this life, some space where it's not to be punitive again, but it's rather to be restorative. It's to deal with the excess things that are still a part of our lives that need to be kind of burned off or drawn out of us so we can enter into the next space, right? And this has traditionally been seen as a Catholic thing, but this is written from uh, more of an evangelical perspective and why there is probably some space for that. And it's pretty interesting because when you look at like 1 Corinthians chapter 3, for example, there is this uh, passage where Paul talks about, hey, we lay on the foundation of Christ certain things in our life. And he says it's either going to be silver, gold, and precious stones, or it's going to be wood, hay, and stubble. And those two things are just juxtaposed to say things done for Christ out of a pure and true heart or things done for Christ out of anything less than a pure and true heart. And if there's anything I know about the Christian experience and experiment is that both are going to be true in all of our lives. 
There's going to be things we do for right reasons, things we do for wrong reasons. We're going to do wrong things with right motives. We're going to do right things with wrong motives. All of that is in there. There's going to be much that is uh, going to pass through the fire and survive because it, it has the purity to pass through the flames. And there's going to be much that goes through the flames and is burned off, Paul says, doesn't survive going into this next iteration of what our lives look like in eternity. And that's okay, except that some people get through with much and some th people, Paul says, get through nothing. Like they everything is burned off. They get, get through, he says, kind of with the smell of smoke. They get through the flames. They have life, but they have really nothing to show for how they lived in this life for Christ. There was just nothing of substance there, right? But they get through. And, and that time of going through the flames is kind of this idea of the purgatory idea, right? So when people go, purgatory is just not in the Bible. Well, there's something of it in 1 Corinthians 3. Now, it's just mysterious enough and ominous enough that we don't know anything about it, right? Like as far as like, is that two seconds? Is that two hours? Is that two days? Is that two years? We don't really, really know. But it's a part of the, the, the chain of events, right? Like if, if we believe that it's there for a reason, then it's there for a reason. It's somehow in the chain of from the time we believe to the time we are in God's presence in our resurrected form on a new heaven and new earth. Among those chain of events is this thing of going through the flames. Right. So we don't want to take away from that. And we don't want to assume on it either. Like we don't want to assume it's just brief. It's so brief. We shouldn't think about it because because Paul's like he says, when you pass through this, you suffer loss. It's a weird thing. Like I know it messes with us a little bit. And part of the reason it messes with us as Protestants is because we 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 kind of get sucked into a gearing in our thinking that has to do with like justification. So quick sidebar, uh, Catholics believe that when you come to faith in Christ, uh, you are uh, infused kind of with grace and then you collaborate with that grace to grow in righteousness till eventually you are declared just or uh, complete in God's sight. And for them, that idea of being declared just or complete comes at the end of your journey. And when you die, if you're not at the end of that journey yet, then you go to purgatory, you go through the rest of this process until you can be declared just or righteous in God's sight, and then you are kind of fit to be in his presence. That's kind of the way it works. So justification, as we call it, is on the, it's the last step of a progression. Protestants rolled in and said, no, we think it's the very first action. So when a person follows Christ, they are immediately justified. They are seen as having the righteousness of, of Christ in them, and that's how it starts. They have grace imparted to them, not simply infused, but imparted to them. And from that now, all of that growth is not about their justification. It's about their sanctification, but they already have a position of the righteousness of Christ. And so they're justified day one where in the Catholic tradition, they're justified on the last day and hence the purgatory thing. And we sometimes go, well, because we're justified, there would be no space for a purgatory after this life or a passing through the flames, except that Paul says we do, right? That's just true. And we don't want to lose sight of that fact. We don't want our, our theological um, bias to override a biblical tenet, right? We, we want to be careful about that to say both can be true. You can maybe have justification on the front end and you still have to pass through this 
this process after death, but before you're in the presence of God, where you, quote, suffer loss. There's something there, right? And I don't know fully what the there is that's there, but it's there. And we don't want to take away from that. And so there's that fourth position of the book that kind of gets into some of that. But again, keeping the idea in mind that the design is not to be punitive, it's to be restorative. It's not designed for God to say, I'm going to get more of my wrath poured out on you to be satisfied. It's like, no, this is just another stage of the sanctifying agency of God in the afterlife, right? So four different writers, four different positions, and then they all kind of pick each other apart. So hopefully just from this in part, you're just like, oh, I learned some stuff I've not learned from more. We did something on the everyday missionary that's not as common. We did a little theological journey on the subject of hell. All of them agree there's a hell. They're just, again, talking about the nature of it. Is it eternal? Is it temporal? Is it restorative? Is it punitive? Like, what's its function, right? Um, and so from that, I guess my encouragement is, hey, if you're interested in these things and you want to see how, hey, there are different points of view on the subject, and they're all thoughtful. It's not like they're not thoughtful. They're all very, very thoughtful. They all come out of the evangelical tradition. None of these writers are non-evangelical in their orientation. They're all incredibly orthodox in the way they see scripture and the way they see tradition, they fall into the Protestant category, really. But they're just kind of going, hey, we should always be willing to look at this because, again, like every generation wants to look at the scriptures and go, hey, what should we learn? How should we grow? Where should we tighten up our stuff? Where should we loosen up our stuff? Where do we need to have sharper edges? Where is it okay if they're kind of dulled, right? Like all of that is a really healthy kind of thing. Now, with that, I'll give you my own just kind of personal reflections, not on any one of those positions per se, but I think on why I've always held the idea of what is the what is the right position of hell a little bit more loosely, all right? Uh, maybe that's the best way I can kind of put it. I think I have like leanings that I have. There's reasons for the leanings that I have, but, but I want to highlight, I think, just some of the things where I've always been like, hmm, and I think a lot of this is going to come down to that eternal conscious torment position. I've always had kind of this uneasy thing with that, but not because I go, it's just emotionally distasteful, right? Like I always want to be clear about that. Not that I'm saying it isn't like, I mean, I think any of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we go, there's a certain level of it that kind of should be because we're not God. We don't have the perfect mind of God to understand all of this. And, you know, the idea that, that, you know, somebody is going to eternally suffer like part of it is we can't even fathom eternity but in this too it's kind of like you know we go like that that seems like a lot right for a lifespan of anywhere from you know seconds you know to 90 100 years old you know that eternity is the consequence of that span of time kind of seems out of position a little bit timeline to timeline right so I, I, I that's understandable the emotional side of this is understandable for me it's always been a little bit more challenging on the theological side um and i think for a couple of reasons right so again i'm just sharing with you not so much like i said my conclusions but to go like hey this is what i've had to wrestle with and i, I hope if anything with this, that at least you go, hey, I appreciate that he's willing to voice his wrestlings. And then with this, how it doesn't change in any way the importance or primacy of being on mission and having a witness and wanting to see people reconciled to God to realize that life is better for Jesus. Because all I'm more motivated than ever by that. But again, I don't think it requires which hell thing we land on to drive that. All right. So that sounded really confusing. It's probably the day quill kicking in. All right. So I take a drink of coffee here really quick too, so I can have some fluid for this one. So um, a couple of the things about this though, like the eternal conscious torment thing that I've had to wrestle with 
from a theological persuasion is, uh, and it's, it's probably multifaceted, but I'm going to start with the one that I've always thought like, this is the most problematic thing, right? Uh, where the other positions uh, would would take the problem out of the equation. I think the eternal conscious torment is the only thing that leaves it in the equation. But if we thought about it statistically, um, we'd have to say since uh, since the covenant that God makes with Adam and Eve and they break the covenant, let's just start it there. It's the simplest way to do it. From that time to now, the percentage of people that are in relationship with God and the percentage of people that are estranged from God, I think we could probably fairly say is pretty radically disproportionate. I don't know what it would be a factor of, you know, probably like one in every billion people is in relationship to God, right? Over the course of human history for thousands of years based on, you know, not being anywhere near the Israelite population to hear about the God of Israel outside of God doing some pretty wild things in tribal populations in other places of the world or whatever else. If we're just kind of clear about it, we'd say probably for every one person that is going to be in the presence of God for eternity, there's one billion people that are going to be in hell for all eternity, right? So for, but all one billion for every one of those people would be image bearers, right? So, so the idea that God's like, they bear my image, but, but in light of that, I'm going to take the overwhelming percentage of them and eternally uh, punish them um, because they didn't believe in me, even though some of that messaging wasn't even really clear to a lot of the global population for a long period of time. I've always kind of wrestled with that, not just again, like at the emotional level, but at the intellectual level of, so if they're then eternally consciously tormented, God must maintain the conditions of hell for all eternity. Thus, when you get to Revelation 21 and 22, where it's like he's wrapping up everything and sin and death are no more. It's like, no, sin and death are very alive for all eternity and at large scale. And God has to maintain the presence of sin and death for all eternity at a large scale, at a scale larger than than the eternal life of those who are in relationship to him, right? So if you just took it spatially for a minute, I, I know the material world in the afterlife is probably hard for us to wrestle with, but it seems that there is a material world in the afterlife and those who are estranged from God have material existence in the afterlife. Just the square miles <laughs> that would be needed to populate a space of torment would be much larger than the square miles of how you would maintain a space for those who are in relationship to God. That's part A. And then part B, God never really wraps up the story of sin and death. He, in fact, if anything, has to manage and maintain the story of sin and death for the rest of all eternity. It would never end. It would never stop. There would always be the reminder of sin and death. And again, at a scale massive in, in, in proportion to uh, that of a, a, eternal life, right? And and so for as long as I can remember, I've always thought like this seems to be one of the great problems where the annihilism position or the uh, universal reconciliation position or, or potentially even kind of that evangelical purgatory position, depending on how if what its role is in the lives of the disbelieving. I don't fully know what to do with that, but but those other positions would kind of resolve this problem. And I know some of us may go, well, you know, but God's ways aren't my ways. I don't have to worry about it. That doesn't seem to be a problem. If he wants to maintain hell and sin and death for all eternity, but it's still, you know, his justice, I go, right, but it doesn't wrap up the story the way Revelation says the story wraps up. 
So that's kind of been the one problem I think I've, I've kind of always struggled with on that one where I'm just like, man, it just seems the eternal conscious torment element becomes very problematic to the arc of the story, right? And, and, and so, you know, that's just been one of the elements that I've kind of wrestled with. I think the other is just on the idea of justice itself, right? And, um, and, and there's going to be a third one in this too, but on the idea of justice, where if God is truly just, then things are proportionate. And I know we go, well, sin is an infinite crime against an infinite God. And, and yet that's not seemingly the way God operates in all of these things, right? Like there, there, there seems to be this finiteness, even to capital sins. You were executed. You were, you were, you know, stoned in the middle of the camp or whatever else that had finality to it. Because again, we remember that all of those, uh, those, uh, legal codes for for um, capital offenses in the Old Testament were written for an elect nation, right? This is one of the things I think we sometimes forget is that God's like, these are my people. I love them. They're my chosen. They're my elect people. We should think of Israel and every Israelite as a saved person. I know that throws us off a little bit. We're like, no, no, no. Don't you see what they do? And I go, right. But again, in the way the story is crafted, God's like, this is my chosen people. And therefore, the laws that are applied to my chosen people, yes, some of those have punitive responses to them, ultimately for the purpose of restoration. I still think that is the Ark of the Old Testament. And then in that, the most capital offense that you would have is execution for a serious legal offense against the code of God. But it was concluded when you died. And then you went where? Sheo, where everybody goes. Like everybody goes to the same place in the Old Testament, right? There, there wasn't like a heaven and hell for the Old Testament. Everybody goes to to rest with their ancestors, it says, you know, and the Sheol thing that is very ubiquitous, but it seems to be the resting place of all Israelites in essence, just means that there was a finality to your crime. And then with that, you know, it's over, it's done, whatever else. So the idea that then, uh, you know, uh, this thing has to be elongated for all eternity to be true justice. Um, that's where I think even the annihilist position would say, no, God can have justice, but it wouldn't be just to do it all eternity because A, he has to then manage that. And then B, it's disproportionate to the way that God typically carries out justice uh, in the Old Testament. And therefore, this idea of eternity in relationship to the punishment is that the punishment is eternal. You cease to exist, right? That's kind of the idea there. So, so you know, that's that other thing where I've always just thought, like, is is justice actually eternal in its uh, longevity? That you must be consciously aware of the justice for all eternity for it to be truly just. And is it truly just if the crime is an eternal punishment for a temporal crime? Maybe that's another way to put it, right? And so, um, you know, that's one of those second things where I've always just wrestled a lot. And I appreciate then there's these other views that tries to wrestle alongside of that as well. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing, and this comes down to the character of God. So I hope what you're getting out of what I, I've struggled through with here is just a character of God thing. As far as like, I, I trust what I see as the character of God. And I sometimes wonder if then this eternal conscious torment thing fits in the character of God that I see. And that has to do with this really sharp distinction of, of, um, in this life, God is desiring to reach you. And as soon as you pass out of this life, God has completely closed himself off from you. Like the demarcation is 
this life and the next life and his disposition toward you is 180'd. As soon as you exit this life, it's like cold shoulder. In this life, I came, I love you, I want you, I seek you, I desire you, you died, I'm done with you, I'm finished with you, I'll never acknowledge you again. Especially in the moment when they'd be most apt to then go like, hey, there is a God, I really believe now. And it's like, too bad, so sad, too late, it's your problem, not mine. Like, like, I, And I'm not saying that that's actually the disposition, but that's what I've wrestled with in this, where I'm like, why, why would why would the nature of God shift just in my death? And then maybe with that a little bit further, why would it shift considering that God has used the mechanism of faith as opposed to he skyrates every day at five o'clock to reach people? So um, maybe I can say it a little bit differently. So if 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 God is so desperate to reach lost people, he uses a mechanism that is disproportionate or disproportionate to me to the passion that he has to reach lost people. So in other words, uh, he uses this idea of faith, which is kind of subjective. It's not grounded in clear, um, unambiguous fact displaying, right? So that's why I always joke about the five o'clock in the day or in the evening skywriting. Like if God did that and then people are like, nope, I still don't believe in God, even though every day, like there is this voice from heaven and sky lights, like the roar borealis. And there's this clear, like, Hey, follow me. And they're like, no, man, I don't want that dude. I'd rather go look at porn right now. Like, like if, if that were the case, I'd be like, well, that's a real clear rejection, but, but faith is nuanced. Right. And so the, the, the fact that God uses this nuance of faith, he uses the clumsiness of us as messengers with our messy lives to go and reach other people and everything else shows that there's already kind of this process in play that's that's going to be more challenging for some people to believe and maybe less challenging for others. There's just all kinds of kind of wiggle room in there. Uh, but God is using this clumsy, clumsy mechanism, and I don't call it clumsy. Paul kind of calls it that in Romans 10, I think it is. Um it's kind of the, the futility of our preaching in some ways is the way it feels. But that's what God chooses to use. He chooses to use this subtle form to reach. Um, but his heart is he so loved the world that he gave, right? For me, it's always been hard to go like, okay, because you're using this kind of subtle form, you don't use the obvious supernatural miraculous everyday format to reach people. Does your heart really change toward the, those people just because they passed away, right? And this is just that other thing that I've always kind of wrestled with, that there would be this clear break, right? And and mainly just from the heart of God kind of thing. And, and it's funny because there's other places where we're even ourselves a little uncomfortable, so we want to violate the rules of what typical how you get saved kind of plays out, right? So people ask, well, what about infants when they die? Or what about people with... Um, uh, severe handicap issues, you know, and, and they don't have the capacity to believe, you know, and, and with there we go, well, there's a special grace there. God does something that's beyond the typical format. And I'm like, we're already making up the story as we go, right? Cause we don't, we, we couldn't anymore be sure of that than we would that little babies just go to hell if they don't believe, you know, like we, there's nothing in us that feels very comfortable to make that statement, but I'm like, they didn't believe that's the mechanism. We talk about an age of accountability, but we really don't have that outside of like adherence to the law for an Israelite. Once they become of adult age, like this idea of accountability and an age of accountability to faith really doesn't find life in the Bible. 
So we're already kind of going like, we got to rely on the grace of God to deal with these people who will go to hell, even though they don't believe. And so in that same spirit of like, man, God's heart toward people is X, I've always struggled with, why does his heart change so radically when they die, when he uses a subtle mechanism as opposed to a blunt force fact every night at five, right? Hopefully that's making enough sense for me to go, that's where I've just wrestled, right? And so in light of that wrestling, then I go, man, this idea of eventual restoration or the fact that after this life, there's still room for something that's at least appealing to me. And so when I read kind of the way that it was structured in this book, you're like, hey, it's it's it doesn't take any urgency out of my life. And I'll, that's going to be the closing remarks here. There's no lack of urgency for me. Uh, at all in when it comes to reaching people the problem is still the problem to me which is reconciliation to god is needed for people to have robust and full lives as god designed that to me is the big storyline anyway um if the idea is just get them out of hell and get them into heaven that is differently problematic because it's not about god it's about location i care more about god than i care about location right so um but but i, I look at it go that aligns more than with what i think is the revealed heart of god throughout the scriptures which is he desires to be reconciled to his creation. He desires to be reconciled to his image bearers. And he is long-suffering and patient and kind. And now we're just moving where that line is. And it's not just when you die, but maybe it's after this life. C.S. Lewis was like a fan of this kind of post-mortem conversion stuff. And I just see like, that would be cool. I don't know if that's what it is, but I go, that would be kind of cool, right? Now it might be eternal conscious torment. I don't really know, right? Like the, all these things are really fascinating to me. And so with that, I go like, hey, this is just, again, kind of food for thought and, and things to consider. Another thing that's interesting to me is actually at the end of the story, book of Revelation. Um, you see this theme throughout the book, which is it's the nations versus those who have been rescued out of the nations, right? So you go back to the theme of Genesis. God wants to uh, bless all the nations. Clearly, the nations, for the most part, seem arrayed against God. In Revelation, that is clearly the case. And so those who are the saints that are saved in heaven and worshiping and saying, how long, O Lord, it, they are described as the ones who were taken out of the nations. And then when you see that word nations throughout the book of Revelation, it's always they're against God. They're arrayed against God. They're here to assault God. The kings of the earth come together to resist and fight against Jesus when he returns and they all get obliterated, right? That's a narrative you're probably pretty familiar with. Well, then you get into chapter 21 and 22, new heaven, new earth, Jerusalem descends. Uh, there is the new Jerusalem. It has gates, but the gates are always open. And outside of the gates are the wicked and inside of the gates are the righteous, but the gates are always open, right? And that picture is like, there is always invitation for those outside of the gates to come into the city. And then what's really, really crazy, it talks about how the kings of the nations come into the new Jerusalem. The kings of the nations throughout the book of Revelation were the ones arrayed against Christ. The kings of the nations were the ones that decided to fight Christ as he returned and yet at the end of the story, the kings of the nations enter into the city. They come into the city, right? This is after after the whole story, after life and death and Jesus's return and everything else. Those who were arrayed against Christ enter into the new Jerusalem. The nations, the kings of the nations of the earth come into the city to enter into relationship with God. That as the narrative goes in the story, they were outside of that relationship, right? And so again, just kind of like narrative food for thought, you know, where we go home. I wonder where this is all going. I wonder what it all means. I wonder if I should wrestle with this a little bit more. Again, in the end, 
I don't know if we fully know, right? There are really good reasons to believe in eternal conscious torment from the New Testament. I think there are really good reasons to believe in a concluding concept of torment or hell or whatever else uh, based on just the character of God and the problem of having to maintain death and sin for all eternity. Because again, if there are people around to be thinking about how they sinned against God and they are experiencing eternal death for all eternity, they're consciously aware of that. None of that shop is closed up, right? And if God is omnipresent, he is before the presence of trillions and trillions and trillions of people for all eternity who are bathed deep in their darkness and sin. And he has to be a witness to those things. That to me is really, really problematic. And again, the idea that God is the desirer of reconciliation, I think the most powerful gospel will be the one that actually can reconcile all people to himself, whether in heaven, under the earth, or on earth, and under the earth, kind of that Philippians passage, that Colossians 1 passage, the blood of Christ would be so potent it could rescue all. That would be super rad too. So all of that to say, fascinating on top of the whole like hey there is this fire thing we go through in first corinthians 3 don't know what it means but it's there and we should wrestle right so what does that have to do with being an everyday missionary then here's what it means none of those positions change the fact that we would want people in relationship with god none of those things change the fact that after this life there is still some kind of thing that's going to happen if you're estranged from god it's not pleasant if you're in relationship with god it's eternal bliss that is true to every one of these positions. And we should then want to live our lives in such a way that we're wanting to see other people reconciled with God, no matter what this afterlife thing looks like. And the key is being reconciled to God. For a long time, it was like, we're just pumping out like tickets to get out of hell and get into heaven. And if a person believes only so they don't go to hell and they just go to heaven, we have not preached the gospel because the gospel is about reconciliation to God. It's not about a change of eternal location right? The change in eternal location is related to where God is at, presence or absence. That's kind of the key in all of this. And I think that's the thing to remember. So if anybody gets worried like, oh, if we if we take this off the table, then why are we going to want to evangelize? For the same reason we should always want to evangelize, right? Relationship with God, friendship with God, union with God. Life is in fact better with Jesus. He came to give us life and life abundant, a joy that no one can take away. Man, it is so there that the motivation for why we do what we do should be because, man, God is so rich and fulfilling and complete in my life and following him gives me so much depth and perspective and nuance to living life well and loving my neighbor well and loving him well because he's loved me well and called me to himself. Like all of that should move us and mobilize us a lot more. And so instead of getting worried about which position, uh, more or less mobilizes us, every one of these positions should mobilize us. Whichever one is the real one. In fact, probably the real one is probably none of the above, right? There's probably this truth, like we've all gotten it a little bit wrong and God's got a plan. But I love this idea, at least, that God is in the reconciliation business. And God has called us to a ministry of reconciliation because he desires to be reconnected with his image bearers. And those of us who have an awareness of life with God get to show that and share that with those who don't have life with God yet. I think that is the big idea. And I think the more we can kind of think in those terms, the more we want to kind of embody a relationship with God and carry that out to the world around us, I think in that we will be even more effective everyday missionaries.